Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Austin Whitman, the founder and CEO of Climate Neutral, a nonprofit organization that works to decrease global carbon emissions by getting brands to measure, offset, and reduce the carbon they emit. Having previously worked in technology, climate, and clean energy for two decades, Austin has a rare perspective on how to shape the conversation, policy, and future around carbon neutrality, particularly from a corporate and economic perspective. As the pandemic has revealed, the climate conversation is deeply connected to the coronavirus one. Austin's someone who brings deep insight into this space. Let's get him on the line. Austin, welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. It's great to be here, Spencer. I wanted to begin, what is Climate Neutral? And could you just describe a little bit about what you do? Yeah, we're a nonprofit organization that started two years ago. And our goal in launching the organization was to create a consumer-facing label for carbon neutrality that could be used by consumer brands Consumers who are paying attention see all kinds of different designations for carbon neutrality. And when we launched, there was really nothing that standardized all the claims that companies were making. So we first of all wanted to standardize those claims and then also make a label that consumers could really respond to. So a distinctive brand identity and something that really kind of was was built around the idea that engaging a consumer in a conversation around climate change is something that more and more companies want to do. So we're an organization that set that label up and we certify companies annually, uh, which means that we measure their carbon emissions. We make them offset all their carbon emissions for a year. And then we ask them for carbon reduction plans that will designate or define how they're going to reduce emissions in the future. And once a company goes through that process, they get to use the label for Mm -hmm. a year. So that's our story. So it sounds like the climate neutral label is pretty clear, but to you, what does carbon neutral actually mean? And how, I guess, do we avoid it becoming overused and abused, like similar to what's happened to a word such as sustainability? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think you know, to some extent we want it to be used widely, but not abused. Mm-hmm. The real goal that we have is to accelerate companies' movement into a net zero direction. So you know, it's very easy to get in deep into just a word quicksand Mm -hmm. with this whole space, right? People will throw around terms like carbon neutral or climate neutral. What's the difference? What's the difference between that and net zero? And the way that we think about it is net zero, think of it as sort of the place that the world is trying to get to by 2050. And all kinds of companies and countries and cities and different entities are making long-term targets to get to net zero by 2050. And that's the state of the world where over the course of a year, the emissions that humans are creating that cause climate change are equally balanced out by the emissions that are being absorbed in some way, shape, or form by nature and by man-made technology. And that's the state that we need to get to. And there are many, many different approaches that people talk about as to how we get there. And so from our perspective, net zero is kind of the long-term trajectory and then carbon neutral is sort of your state at any given time, right? So in 2020, was a company carbon neutral? Well, 
I don't know, did the company measure offset and is it planning to reduce its emissions? If the amount of emissions that you created in 2020 were offset equally by investing in carbon credits, then you're carbon neutral for that year. How do you get that to be a meaningful claim really comes down to how much you're measuring, Mm -hmm. how much you're counting. So what we saw about 10, 15 years ago was a lot of companies saying, hey, we're carbon neutral, but really only measuring a very narrow portion of their operations. And that becomes a problem because if any company only takes responsibility for, say, 10% of its carbon footprint, then, you know, you do the math and we're not going to get where we need to go. So it's important for companies to take stock of all of their emissions, including their value chain emissions, and use that for the basis for carbon neutrality. I want to get into a bit of the sort of whole supply chain holistic approach you've taken a bit later. But before that, what I was curious about is what led you to found this? Like, what is your background? How did you come to this? Well, I won't take full credit. I'll take partial credit. And the journey that I was on sort of, you know, the, the end of about 15 years working on what I think of as sort of two of the major levers that we have to deal with climate change. You've got finance, sort of how, how do big sums of money flow? And then policy, you know, what are the rules that people have to follow? And so I worked a bunch on finance internationally, domestically, I worked a bunch on policy, you know, at every level, state, federal, international. And In 2018, I was introduced to the founder and CEO of a company called Peak Design, a guy named Peter Daring, and he was coming at the climate problem uh, from the perspective of his own company, just trying to understand how his company was contributing to climate change. And he'd been through a process of measuring their carbon emissions and offsetting them and was struck by two things. One, it's very difficult to measure your carbon emissions, and two, it's relatively cheap to offset them. You know, at, at that time, I was honestly getting a little bit frustrated and impatient with both finance and policy because both those mm. both those large levers have just kind of moved very, very slowly. And anybody who's concerned about climate change can't look at the state of policy and feel excited. Like you, you just mm-hmm. can't because policy yeah. is not taking care of the problem at a level of ambition that's really that's really necessary. So I felt like, you know, this is an interesting opportunity to team up with somebody who's willing to put money into launching a nonprofit. The idea was born essentially from October to, to March of 2018 to 2019. And it felt to me like an exciting opportunity to tap into a third lever, which is individual consumer power, mm. norms of consumers and how consumers spend money. You know, we account for, we consumers account for about two thirds of the global economy. And so there's a major, major opportunity to take the anxiety that consumers are feeling about climate change and push it into a direction of, of decarbonizing the world. So if we can do this at scale, then I think we can have a meaningful impact on climate. You talk about scale and, and what kind of company you've become, and in, in certain ways you're a technology company. So one of, the, one of the things we were curious about is how you're using technology to actually directly lower carbon emissions. And do you consider yourself sort of a tech company now? It's it's a great question because it's it's been an unexpected twist in this journey. Honestly, I kind of I started off my career in the dot com era, you know, late '90s, and went of course went right into technology because everybody had to go to technology at the time. And so I've spent like I've never actually been a software engineer, but I spent a good bit of my career around technology platforms. And within four months of launching Climate Neutral, it was clear that there is a huge lack of effective technology tools that sustainability professionals have access to. And most of the carbon footprinting, the carbon accounting, the carbon management happens on homegrown spreadsheets with people who feel like, you know, they're just really ill-equipped 
to, to kind of get their head around the basics of how much their carbon uh, footprint is. So yes, we, we, starting in May of our first year, we started building a piece of software to help measure carbon emissions. And from there, we've realized that in order to get to the scale we want, but without growing the team significantly, we've got to come up with better ways of streamlining the whole certification process. So there's an entirely separate additional technology tool set that we use to just inform people to guide them through the process in more of a, an automated way. And we're, I mean, we're just at the primitive, primitive stage still on both of those. I mean, I think there's so much more we can do. And so, yes, we've, we've become what's, I guess, known to some as a tech nonprofit. There's certainly the marketing of the label and the branding element, but in order to, to run the operations, which is probably what I spend 80% of my time doing or 90% of my time doing, the technology is, is really critical. Mm. How are you solving the scaling issue? I imagine that most companies just don't have the resources to commit to this kind of project. What are your thoughts around that? One of the ways is to build a tool set that, that enables somebody without a, a detailed background in climate or life cycle analysis to get in and, and lead the certification process. So we have people who run marketing, people who run operations, you know, all kinds of people who are there company's certification leads. And that's one way to scale because it means that you're going to be able to work with a range of companies regardless of whether they have a dedicated full-time sustainability team. Another way is to think about this as a problem that every company faces, not just the world's largest companies. And I think a lot of what we've seen in the past in this area is service providers who are just going after, because their, their models are built around revenue optimization, they're just going after the largest companies in the world, the 10 or 15 largest companies in a given market, leaving the entire rest of the world out of it. If you were to look around your house or you know, th think about the things, the brands that you're really loyal to, I bet that many of the companies that you're loyal to are not particularly big companies and they don't mm -hmm. fall into that sort of 10 or 15 biggest company group. And so what about those companies? And, and so I think you know, part, of, part of the key to scale is expanding our view of what the target market is here to companies that are in the 100 million to, to 2 billion in revenue range, not just the 100 billion in revenue. I could talk for hours about scale because it's something that we think about a lot. You know, obviously we, we, we touched on technology. We think that there are ways through partnerships that we can both get in front of more companies as well as um, certify more companies by not having to certify them directly ourselves. Mm. We also, as I said, want to do more automation in the process of certifying. So we, every time we talk to sustainability consultants, there's a sense of, well, you know, a lot of what we do could be in a sense mass produced. You know, we kind of do the same thing every time we work with a client. Well, I think right. if, if we as a, a nonprofit that's, that's aiming to scale, if we can pick up some of that ethos and, and um, more of the journey of certification, we can push companies along to decarbonization a lot faster. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the, the sort of the, this middle ground or the area that we don't really think about. I mean, we're, we're focused on these huge companies that have big marketing efforts around sustainability, but... It's true. When you look around, you're engaging with lots of small companies that probably don't have the money to really get into this. So how do you lower the barrier of entry? How do you engage on that level? And do you think that that's going to come from sort of the inside or it's going to come from customer demanding that 
if you don't have this label, kind of like food in the 70s or something, if you don't have this label, I'm, I'm just not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. I guess it has to come from every direction, but the way to make it feasible is to reduce the fixed costs of building knowledge that allows you to understand what your impact is. And what I mean by that is the typical model starts with a consulting engagement. Somebody comes in and, you know, it's often $30,000, dollars $50,000. I was a consultant once, right? And so I know how engagements are priced. It sort of isn't really worth pricing it, you know, anything less than $15,000, dollars at the bare minimum because of all the setup costs and everything else. And so that's, that's a non-starter for a lot of companies out there. Yeah, It's just not budget that they're going to find. And so what we're trying to do is to start people off with something that costs very little or is in some cases free mm. and it gets them a reasonable level of intelligence and access to tools and you know just starts to teach them some basic things about how they're contributing to the to the problem if we can do that to more and more companies then i think we're able to able to focus people's efforts on the things that are more important around around reducing carbon in their in their business and in their value chain so in essence, whatever limited resources a small company has, focus them on offsetting emissions and reducing emissions as opposed to measuring emissions. Mm. Where do you see government playing into this? Like, should there be a, a sort of federal mandate or should there be federal responsibility in terms of this conversation we're having? Yeah, I mean, I would love there to be policy. And absolutely, climate is sort of the classic case for the role of government in dealing with society's ills because it's this nebulous, far-off problem that isn't affecting anyone directly now, but Mm -hmm. affects all of us directly at some point in the future, but we don't know what that future point exactly is, and it'll affect different people differently, and the actions that each of us take have an effect on everybody, but maybe not ourselves directly, right? So if I buy the largest vehicle and live in the largest home, right? I I can do that and probably won't see any ill effects, but the cost of that to others in society and to, you know, to future generations are significant. So the role of government typically is to kind of spot those economic failures and step in and make some rules that try to adjust for them. Government's not doing it. And, you know, we're approaching 30 years of trying, if you count back to the beginning of the Kyoto Protocol, Mm -hmm. the beginning of the negotiations in the international level. I'm trying not to use too many acronyms and too many, uh, (laughs) you know, terms of art and so forth. But like, basically go back to 1992. And that's sort of the beginning of modern day, well, ever, you know, really kind of coordinated policy discussions and different nations as a result of international diplomatic discussions have had their own attempts to pass policy that will allow them to go to the global stage and represent that they're doing stuff to, to make progress on climate. But we still don't have federal policy in the U.S. And mm-hmm. the last major legislative attempt was was over 10 years ago now. And even then, it would have taken 10 or more years for that legislation to really start to have teeth, to really start to take effect. Mm. So policy is difficult. You know, it, it involves balancing so many different interests. It's a slow process to pass. It always is very slow to implement. And 
the big thing that tipped people off to the urgency was a couple of years ago when the report came out saying we've got 12 years to deal with this problem. And you know, many policy instruments sort of have five to 10 year on-ramp periods. So if you're going to burn you know, 10 years of your 12 years just on the on-ramp, how many years do you have budgeted for making policy? Like we absolutely need policy, but by design, it just doesn't happen very fast. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot overstate just how important it is for voluntary action to happen. Right. You can pick a number 2030 and it sounds nice, but how do you actually get there? Yeah. Storytelling is such a big component of this and and, and critical part of solving the climate crisis, really. How are you using storytelling in the work that you do? Yeah, every company that we work with has its own brand story. So number one, our label is meant to integrate into the brand story that people are trying to tell. And, you know, we're not going to work logically with a company that just doesn't care at all about talking about climate change because there's no integration with our, between our story and their story. So number one is just supporting their brand story as much as we can with the label itself. Number two is telling stories in a way that, and when I say telling stories, I mean just conveying the information in a way that people can understand very clearly and simply because it's hard to respond to a story unless that story makes sense to you. Number three is equipping people who are certified with visual assets, communications kits, with different ways of articulating the work that they've done and to make that work as real as possible for their consumers. So Mm. an example of that is when a company buys carbon offsets, we want to make sure that they have the ability to visually display and communicate what those carbon offsets actually did, as opposed to just saying carbon offsets or carbon credits, which feels very nebulous. So to try to make it real with imagery, with specifics about projects, because we did this investment in carbon offsets, this person over here was able to do X, Y, Z. This person was able to protect this land or plant these trees or build this renewable energy project. So we try to we try to make sure that the brands are equipped to tell tell their stories through through visual assets. We do emphasize and think a lot about just traditional marketing that consumer brands are really good at cutting things up into bite-sized snippets, using video a lot, being engaging on social media. These are things that labeling and certification organizations don't typically do that much of. And so it's honestly not that hard to improve upon status quo, but we certainly have a lot, mm. lot more that we could do. I mean, connected to that, you know, some of the narrative drivers historically about sustainability have created beliefs very strongly, they've done really well, that are no longer maybe correct. Plastic recycling is a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. This sort of greenwashing. At the end of the day, what's going to actually help us move into a clean future? And how should some of the huge advocacy groups like Greenpeace, for instance, be dealing with this? Because when you really track some of the people with the loudest voice in this movement, it doesn't always work out. Mm-hmm. What, what doesn't always work out? Uh, here's a good example. Greenpeace right now is pretty harshly against, you know, deep sea mining, for instance, or not understanding trade-offs, this idea of urgency that we should just put a moratorium on the oceans in regards to polymetallic nodules or any of these ideas mm-hmm. where, or nuclear is a great example, you know, mm-hmm. that the whole conversation around nuclear, how, how do we sort of check these large organizations with the largest voices when they're not always maybe at least in conciliance with everyone else. I guess I'm a believer in 
multiple theories of change kind of running simultaneously in a market. And I don't certainly don't agree with all of Greenpeace's stances or views on environmental issues and business activities and what have you. But the thing that they do really well is just poke people and get them to pay attention. And they've been extremely effective at starting the conversation. And I think that that theory of change has a role even in a much more kind of market and business friendly or business collaborative strategy, because it brings people to the table. It's, it's, it says like, look, your way of doing business is no longer acceptable. Now, how you choose to respond to that is kind of up to you. And the good news is there's also this other environmental NGO over here that tends to work more collaboratively with businesses than, than say a Greenpeace does, or, you know, an organization that tends to just sue companies as their kind of main theory of change, which again, has a role right. in, in the world because yes, a lot of companies do push the limits of what's actually allowed under the law and they need to be sued. All these different things, they all, they support one another, even if they're not necessarily perfectly well aligned. You brought up nuclear, you know, there's a, there's definitely a technical challenge in getting to a zero carbon electric grid and nuclear is often thought of as one of the biggest opportunities to plug the gap that's left when you retire a bunch of coal plants and natural gas plants. And some countries do it really well. America does not. I think that there's a, a very strong technical case for nuclear, but plenty of people just chafe at the idea that we're going to start building more, more reactors. And I guess I'm trying to tie this all back to your initial question. Well, maybe I did it. I'll, just, I'll let myself up. No, you did it. I mean, <laughs> my main thing is, it, and, and the question is really about it being very hard as just a general citizen to know what the truth is because mm -hmm. some voices are louder than others and, and generally the narrative is not quantifiable in data. And what you're doing seems to be all about kind of data mm -hmm. and representation of truth. And so do you see climate neutrals maybe, maybe role in the conversation at a certain point being the sort of standard of truth across the board, not just for carbon emissions, but generally how we're going to get towards a carbon neutral future. This is an interesting question, especially at the time that we're living in right now, where, where we're kind yeah. of in this post-truth world. And I guess the distinction I would try to draw is that there are facts and then there's strategy, right? And what we've seen in the last handful of years is just an erosion of facts. And so things that are like incontrovertibly true are said to be false. Mm -hmm. And that just really messes with everyone's heads. And it makes them distrust government and it makes them distrust science. And both of those mm -hmm. things are really, really dangerous. There, then there's, there's strategy, which is, I think, a different thing. And there is no true, like, right strategy. Strategy is a question of assembling facts and then coming up with a plan that hopefully has the greatest chances of succeeding over the longer term. And when it comes to you know, how best to decarbonize the world, it's not a question of facts, it's a question of strategy. And mm. yes, there are organizations out there, say two organizations that are equally loud and vocal, they could have very different views on the right strategy to decarbonize the world. Our goal is to some extent stay as close to just facts as possible and not have people have to work too hard to grasp a strategy because the mechanism is relatively simple. Companies out there are not paying to address their carbon emissions. And if companies paid to address their carbon emissions, we would be doing a hell of a lot more to get on that net zero curve 
than we are today. And that number, the number of what a company needs to pay to make a meaningful difference is not that big. That's the basic sort of setup, the basic strategy, if you will, that we're, we're just trying to get people to buy into. And mm. from a consumer perspective, that just simply looks like, you know, buy the product with the label and don't buy the product without it. And over time, yeah. more and more of your spending goes to companies with the label. So more and more companies are going to get the label. So more and more companies are going to measure, offset and reduce their carbon emissions. And that's it. When those investments in offsetting and reductions happen, more and more money flows directly to projects that are cutting carbon. I fully support and believe in the need for policy, but there are plenty of examples of policy that were set up to do one thing. For example, a tax on high carbon fuels or something like that, where the government then says, okay, well, we raised all these revenues through the tax. Yeah. And now we're going to spend those revenues on something completely different, like balancing the state budget. So there's only, only one half of that tax is working. The half of it that's working is the, the price signal to companies not to invest as much in high carbon fuels. Mm -hmm. But the other half of it, which is what you do with the revenue, is not working because you're using it to balance the state budget. So getting kind of deep into things here. So. Yeah, but you're, you're making an economic argument though, yeah. which is important because I think economics often is the argument against. It's like, you know, money becomes the driver. But here you're actually arguing that money can be a driver and a positive. It doesn't have to go against the environment. Yeah, if some of the biggest companies get on board, I mean, let's talk about one in particular, not one company in particular, but one area that's affecting all of this when you look across the supply chain, which is just planned obsolescence and e-waste, right? How should we be dealing with this? What's your view of it? That's a very specific question. And I don't know that I have a view as to how we should be dealing with it because there's a tension that we haven't figured out, which is when companies say they want to do the right thing, but that statement is also tied to a desire to sell more of the thing that they sell. How do you resolve those two? And, you know, for, for starters, I think we could all probably agree that if every product out there came from a company that measured an offset and is reducing its carbon emissions, we'd be in a better world than without that. Mm -hmm. And that's a long way from where we are today. So to keep on economics, let's use Occam's Racer, just like not change anything else about the actors on the stage, the pricing or the you know planned obsolescence or anything else, like all else equal, it would be better to live in a world where companies are taking stock of their carbon emissions. Then you get into other things like how long does a product last and how is a product used? What are its emissions during the use phase? What happens when it's disposed of? Is it recycled? You know, the end of life questions. And a lot of companies are thinking through how to make products that are more easily recycled. I don't frankly think that our job is to, you know, tell Apple that its average product life should be extended to five years or eight years just by software improvements as opposed to hardware improvements. I think that the costs of production and the cost of carbon that's embedded into devices should reflect the threat to climate change. And if we do that, we'll be in a better position. I'm going to punt on the rest of it because I don't think we have an answer to, to how to extend product life cycles. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone has an answer. It's an interesting response you have, though. It's just like, let's just deal with it on the economic level. They can do what they want. As consumers, we can buy new things every year if we want. And maybe in the end, that just 
promotes the budgets on fighting carbon emissions at the end of the day. It's like, that's where it kind of stops. This gets back to the point I was making earlier about what you count as part of your carbon footprint. That's kind of what I'm getting at, yeah. One of the things that is really, really important is to embed all the cost of raw materials in your carbon responsibility, right? And and every time you make a new device, if you have to actually take into account the carbon from mining the metals that went into that phone, they're going to think about that process differently than if you can just use them without paying attention to those costs. Mm -hmm. So that certainly has to happen. And then, of course, there's shipping devices to customers, which is compared to the manufacturing, not as much, but it's still significant. And then there's the use phase emissions, which ironically, the longer a product is around, the more share of its footprint is actually attributed to, you know, to use phase emissions. I heard one fascinating stat that if you had a, just a steel thermos or water bottle for just a couple of years, most of its emissions are in the manufacturing. But if you had that thing for 20 years, the vast majority of those emissions are in cleaning. Mm. So dishwashing of that product. And that just has to do with you know how long that thing is stays around and is used. Whether a company's like you know like Apple is responsible for its use phase emissions and disposal is an important question. They do look at a lot of this in their, in their sustainability report, and I believe are, are thinking about it. Another area I did want to bring up was travel. I know that a lot of the companies you work with are in that space, and I was curious how you think about the future of transportation, particularly flying and air travel and how climate neutral fits into this? For starters, airline emissions today are only 2 to 3% of, of the global total. So the general kind of flight bashing or flight shaming movement is something that I think it's a little bit like the plastic straw movement. And it's kind of focusing on a very narrow set of behaviors that mm-hmm doesn't have a disproportionately negative impact on the overall scale. Now, now why people care about it is you know, they're scared of those emissions rising as low to moderate income countries get wealthier and more and more people fly. You know, that number as a share of total global emissions could rise significantly. And we don't yet have any way of making planes fly without carbon emissions. The only way to do that is to change what's going in the tank. So there's a big, big effort around sustainable biofuels that go into aviation fuels. Our view on travel is it happens, and it's often as a share of the total footprint of companies, a relatively small chunk because we're counting those manufacturing emissions as well. We hope as much as anyone that more sustainable aviation fuels will be developed over time. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that they are, we can reflect those in the company's carbon footprint. Would be kind of cool if you if you had bragging rights about the airline you flew based on the fuel that was in the tank. I think a lot of people would be into that. Yeah, I mean, you get on a Delta flight and you see the stickers for all the awards they've won, but you don't really see any related to climate. <laughs> yeah, right. Customer service and you know how big the snacks were and that kind of thing. But I haven't been <laughs> on an airplane in over a year. It's kind of crazy. I don't know if you guys stopped flying, but yeah, it's it's wild and honestly kind of nice not to have to have to fly once, twice, three times a week. I mean, there's been so many amazing impacts, right, of COVID, that being one of the many. The most amazing for us was when we were in the thick of certifying our first major group of companies, about 105 companies. And I had this experience in 2009, kind of as the financial crisis was unfolding and the climate-focused 
financial firm that I was working for at the time just basically was like everything is falling apart and everything fell apart both policy-wise at the time as well as you know the financial markets. Last year I thought there's no way. Here we go again. It feels like we're onto something so big. We thought that we would have 36 companies. We have 105 companies going through this process and now it's all going to be taken away. Absolutely the opposite happened. The attention that companies and individuals are paying to sustainability just if anything got more focused and more committed. That was that was amazing. I do think that some of that was because of COVID. Absolutely. I mean, which companies right now, I don't know if you, you, you feel comfortable sharing that, but who's your wish list? Like, what are, the, what are the ones you really would love to come on board? There's one company that for some strange reason I'm obsessed with getting on board. It's Yeti. And it's because they're big, their products are everywhere, and they come from a more conservative part of the country. And I just think if we could get them, it would be a, a coup. Because it would be like, here's a company, you know, most of their market is people who enjoy the outdoors, the outdoor, health of the outdoors depends on, you know, stable climate. And a lot of the people who buy their products and certainly the people who work there are more kind of free market minded people. And if we could get them on board, it would just be like, you know, that's a huge endorsement of this, of this theory of change. Mm. You know, beyond that, there are anyone's favorite brand in a given category. There are companies that I wish we could get on board. You know, beginning with the the known sustainability achievers like Seventh Generation and Patagonia, but moving into maybe some of the less likely companies out there. Um, Eileen Fisher is a clothing brand that we've um, we've had our eyes on. We'd love to get them on board. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly no no end to the list. Eileen Fisher. It's funny you say that on our other podcast, Time Sensitive, we did an episode with Eileen Fisher. Oh, cool. And. Uh, you know, you look at a company like that and it's just incredible how long she's been in that game mm -hmm. and how how deeply she cares about that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I hope that happens. It, it seems like there's definitely alignment there. W one question I had, we talked earlier about this, this auditing the whole supply chain for carbon emissions. And I was curious if there's been sort of unintended insights that happen in other areas of the operation, whether this is kind of like a forcing function just by looking at the whole supply chain for carbon emissions, has it been a forcing function for companies to find other areas of improvement just by auditing the full supply chain? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, the, the thing that we hear again and again is that the certification process adds value to the company, which is the equivalent of me telling you that preparing your taxes somehow feels like it's a good thing for your family, which I highly doubt that you would actually tell me that, right? So like certification or auditing processes, I think don't tend to add a lot of value to whoever is going through them. But what we do here is that in our case, yes, people see value in it because they're starting to learn about different impacts of their operations. And through the process, they, they figure out kind of what's causing the problem, the emissions problem. And then through the the joining of our community, they get access and exposure to service providers and technologies that would help them reduce emissions. Like brands are sharing all the time, who do you use for your last mile delivery? Who do you use for freight forwarding? There are options out there that are more uh, suitable for carbon management than, than others. And so we see people changing service providers and changing packaging materials and all kinds of stuff and stuff they wouldn't have thought about until they really started to to pull back the layers of the carbon footprint. So the more we can do to facilitate that idea exchange and you know, get people fired up about 
working together with manufacturers and you know in r d the more we feel like the certification process does add value to companies mm. final question is what's your greatest hope as we emerge from this pandemic and this moment and just going forward just that we won't forget the lessons that we've learned in the last year i think humans are really good at in a good way at being resilient but you know i was working in the electric power space and Hurricane Sandy hit and the amount of pain and suffering that that happened as a result of the, just the entire the storm moving up the at the East Coast made people think differently, act differently, make different planning decisions for about three years, I want to say. Every utility proceeding, every every rate case, every infrastructure decision, a lot of the building projects, they were all around this like very raw, fresh memory of the effect of that hurricane. And people were willing to just shift how they set priorities and how they spent money because they felt vulnerable. Mm. That doesn't happen anymore because humans are resilient and you know we, we move on, we, we forget. And I just hope that coming out of this process of just a devastating global affliction, we won't forget the sense of both vulnerability that we have as humans to these forces that are beyond our control and the ability to rally together and have communities protect each other, people being willing to make sacrifices like you know, social distancing, whatever, to protect people, even if they themselves are not directly affected. There's a direct line between between pandemics and climate change in so many different ways, how they're caused and how we react to them. And I hope that we'll just keep taking all that to heart and being willing to make climate a, a center priority in everything that we do, whether it's voting at the polls or voting with our wallets. Austin, thanks so much for your time today. It was great to have you on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.